Hi, and welcome to Integrative Cancer Solutions with Dr. Carl Felt. A cancer diagnosis is one of the hardest slap in the face imaginable. All of a sudden, you have to become an expert in cancer and its treatments because your life depends on it. Oncologists, family and friends are pushing you towards chemo, radiation, surgery, yet you feel there are additional solutions out there. You don't feel confident in that only traditional therapies will take care of it. You may, as I have, seen family or friends quickly go downhill from harsh medical treatments. There is a better way. I invite you to listen to stories from real people fighting cancer successfully through powerful, integrative, and holistic methods. Learn what they did. This is my gift to you to make the learning curve less steep after your diagnosis. The information in this podcast could save your life as it has others. Well, Dr. Stephen Iacoboni, it's such a pleasure and honor to, to have you on this segment. I've, I've known you for many years. You're, you're a dear friend, and you made such a huge impact in the medical oncology field, but also in the integrative oncology field. So thank you for being with me today. Well, Mike, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, yes, we've been friends and also worked together for several years. And I'm very excited about your new program and looking forward to participating. And for, for the audience out there, Dr. Stephen Iacoboni has been practicing medical oncology for over 40 years. During that time, he has had over 200,000 uh, patient en encounters during his long career. He's seen the practice of oncology evolve into his present state from its uh, from this present state uh, from his primitive uh, primitive state back in the 1980s. Uh, towards the end of the third decade of his career, he decided to become more familiar and educated with an integrative approach, including naturopathic remedies added to chemotherapy. To that end, he studied abroad and did primary research on truly integrated cancer care. His specialty is in overcoming chemotherapy drug resistance with naturopathic remedies. And, and I mean, this this does not even touch you know the breadth of knowledge and uh, training and and you know, accomplishments that that you've had during these forty years. I mean, you've you've taught at some of the most pre prestigious places. Can you can you kind of add a little bit to to that bio so so people really understand you know where where you're coming from? Uh, well, sure, I'll try and uh, be humble about it. That's the most important thing. But I did go. I went to medical school in, in San Francisco, which uh, many people regard as one of the top schools in the world. Uh, and then I did my training in uh, oncology at MD Anderson, uh, which many people regard as the top cancer center uh, in the world, uh, certainly in the United States. And I uh, did my training there and then was offered a professorship, which I uh, did for a period of time. Uh, but then I... Uh, I got a little uh, disillusioned by um, the whole process, which uh, was not, in my opinion, patient-centered. It was pharmacology-centered. And I have a great interest in pharmacology, but uh, the pharmacology uh, approach in the medical centers is designed to um, bring new drugs to market, uh, not so much. Uh, it's, that's the primary goal care of the patient is important and it's of course undertaken but it is actually not the primary goal a lot of people don't realize that and so i also have a deep love for being at the bedside with the patient and i couldn't really do that 
in academia, they want you to let the trainees do the patient work and you sit and write papers. And I just decided I wasn't going to spend my life doing that. Uh, so I went into private practice. And, and with that also, and, and that's an interesting point for people to really understand, you know, when they go to places like MD Anderson and you, you come with the, the understanding or thinking that they have the most cutting edge tools available and, and they truly do. But at the same time, their focus may not be uh, solely upon your care. Uh, it may be biased in a way to really kind of focus more on the development of the drugs and see what the drugs uh, can do, you know, due to, I'm, I'm sure they're funded quite a bit by the, the you know, you know, pharmacy, you know, pharmacological companies uh, to, uh, to support these kind of uh, research and studies that they're doing at, at that location. Well, exactly. And uh, I don't uh, mean to sound critical. I hope I don't. Um, uh, what I, I think the finer point to make is that the, the mission of an academic institution is to do research. That's their primary mission. Uh, the mission of a doctor out in the community is to take care of the patient. And um, I had to choose between research and patient care, and I just fell in love with patient care. And, you know, research is hard. Uh, there's a great burden on the industry to bring drugs to market and, and uh, comply with all the re regulations. And so they have to do what they have to do. They invest billions of dollars doing it. But uh, it still didn't uh, filter down quite perfectly to the bedside and I my priority was care at the bedside and so I had to leave and do my own thing and so I made that choice uh, but I know what it's like to be at a, at a research institution and some of the comments I'll make later about how that uh, impacts community cancer care um, I'll make some more comments in that regard uh, when we get into that. Great and and it in, in addition to then functioning as a medical oncologist, uh, you've also uh, heavily researched the, the integrative aspect. Uh, you were uh, head of the oncology uh, at, a, uh, at a clinic in Mexico, and then also uh, you, you ran Dr. Forsyth Clinic for a couple of years as well. Uh, so you, you have quite a breadth of knowledge in, in both areas. Well, I do. I like to think of myself as one of the more important uh, integrative oncologists uh, in the country uh, for the reasons you mentioned. What happened was uh, a lot of us believed that we would be curing cancer by the year 2000, uh, and that didn't happen. And I had to ask the question why, and I couldn't get any answers within the confines of conventional medicine. And so I started casting about for answers and to be honest, that made me a little unpopular with my colleagues who feel committed to towing the line and not asking questions. But it's hard to, to not meet the needs of your dying patient in, in, in favor of the needs of the industry. Uh, and I, I, it just wasn't possible for me to ignore the needs of my patient. So I asked the simple question, why isn't the chemotherapy working? Um, and uh, I found that there are answers that no one else was really interested in. And so I had, uh, with all due respect to uh, the, uh, the illusion that this makes, I had to leave the reservation uh, and go off into the wild. And that's, that's what I did. And we could talk about that. 
And so, and and I want to get into the the chemo, you know, the pros and cons, you know, because obviously it it does play a role. But to understand what kind of role and what the limitations are, and then also immunotherapy, which is more kind of a a, a newer direction that medical oncology has has gone. So during can can you talk a little bit about the evolution of medical oncology? You know, back in the 1980s, you know what. What has changed? You know, where were we at at that time, and how are we different now? Well, you can think of the '80s as uh, I think a good analogy would be um, the history of spaceflight, which didn't begin until the mid '50s, and it was very primitive. I mean, we got all excited because we put a dog in orbit for an hour, <laughs> uh, but within 15 years, we were walking around on the moon, and a lot of people might not be aware of the fact that medical oncology did not exist as a specialty until the mid 70s. You know, there was already cardiology, gastroenterology, nephrology, kidneys, everything. The idea that you could kill cancer with with medicine uh, was actually considered uh, a bad idea. Uh, Treatment was radiation and surgery. Uh, And then there was a breakthrough in the 60s, not by oncologists, because there weren't any, but by gynecologists. And um, then some breakthroughs came in in the late 60s, treating leukemia and lymphoma. And then the idea was, so maybe maybe we can do this. But there were actually very few medical oncologists in the United States, even at the 1975. uh, And the the specialty really didn't get going until the 80s. And you could say at that time we were putting a, uh, a capsule into orbit to go around the Earth once or twice. And then it's a long way from there to going to the moon and back and the space shuttle and everything else. And so um, it's been part of the reason, actually, why I went into oncology, because it was the frontier and I was right there. I graduated medical school uh, in 79 and it was the birth of the specialty. And so I've been with it almost the whole way. Uh, and it's been very exciting, but we started out in a very primitive fashion. And, uh, of course that's had to be refined. Um, for the first 15 years or so, I thought, okay, well, we're in the primitive stages. We'll break out of that. We'll land on the moon. We'll come back. We'll have a parade that never really happened. And so when it hadn't happened within 15 years, I had to ask myself what's missing. And so do you feel that we are, I mean, you're talking about being primitive. Do you feel the tools we are using now? I, I, obviously, we, we've dialed down kind of dosing better. We've dialed down what kind of frequency and, and how, when to do it and, and so forth. Uh, but do you, do you feel other than that, that there are uh, advances that has been made in that field? Well, there's been there has been substantial progress, uh, but most of the progress has been either curing early stage disease and extending the life of late stage disease, but but not curing people with late stage disease. So, if you have stage two or three breast cancer or colon cancer, we can cure that. If you have stage four breast cancer or colon cancer, we can keep you alive for several years, but you're still going to die. Um, and the same thing with colon and breast and lung and pancreas. We're not able to, once the cancer reaches a certain stage, it develops a certain extra 
ability to resist chemo. And so this gets back to the question I asked at the beginning, how come, so you can take a patient with stage four colon cancer with cancer in the liver that's led for colon and you can give them chemotherapy and make it all disappear on an x-ray and in the blood. And in nine months, it's back. Why is that? Of course, the answer is because uh, one fraction of the cells had a native resistance and they grew back, just like when you kill dandelions in your in your garden, um, there's always flowers that grow back. Uh, and so I asked myself, why did those cells not die? And why aren't we addressing that? Because that's what causes death. And, and I realized that the industry had no interest in addressing that, which I found uh, disconcerting because it was, to me, the biggest problem of all. And the reason why they didn't want to address it is because they hadn't changed their their model of what they were doing. You can think of the Vietnam War, and we were carpet bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail and all sorts of places there. We still lost the war because you can bomb it until there's nothing, there's no shrubbery left, but the people are underground waiting for the bombs to stop dropping, and then they come out again. And... So there was a form of resistance we weren't drop we weren't addressing, but the industry seemed only interested in more and more drugs rather than finding out what was happening with the drugs. And what a lot of people also wouldn't realize is that most chemotherapies work the same. I mean, they're different drugs, they have different names, but it's not like antibiotics. If you have penicillin resistant strep in your throat, we can choose another antibiotic and it will work. That's not the way it works for chemo. You choose 10 different chemos, and if the cancer is resistant to one, it's resistant to all of them. And from that, you can understand that the mechanism is not drug-specific, but um, the cancer has developed a different set of armor, and that should be addressed. But since it's not a drug, uh, the pharmaceutical industry felt like they didn't know how to address it. And I thought, well, this, something's got to be done about this. And so that's what I um, focused on. And it talked a little bit about uh, immunotherapy, and uh, also you have hormone deprivation. Is is you know two different therapies that are part of the arsenal as well. I mean, how how important are they in in you know the battle against cancer? Well, that is the second part of the answer I was just giving. I didn't want to talk too long, but what the pharmaceutical industry. Maybe they were interested in the question I was asking, but they got off on a different tangent, which was the discovery of immunotherapy, which really is like the evolution of airplanes in warfare. In other words, before the Second World War, airplanes had almost no role in airfare in warfare. In First World War, they used them a little bit. By the Second World War, airplanes dominate the war and so it's a whole new technology and a whole new way to fight a war and immunotherapy is just like that it doesn't work the way chemo works and so i think the hope was that we could use immunotherapy to get rid of the cancer that the chemo wasn't working um but the problem is it's the same thing the cancer is still resistant to the immunotherapy and so uh it works it works in a different way but the cancer ultimately will still resist it if you have stage four disease. The other thing, I don't want to sound cynical, I'm just stating a fact. Immunotherapy costs 
get ready, $200,000 a year or more. And so, again, this is an industry that's making a lot of money and is making some progress, but no one would consider it cost effective. 200 grand a year for every 78-year-old person with colon cancer who has a year and a half to live and you, you deplete their life savings or you deplete Medicare for the extra three months. Well, I'm not trying to judge the effectiveness of that on a humane scale, but I mean, it is uh, a big money deal. And so that's where their focus is. Um, and it would be fine with me if it actually cured the cancer, but it still doesn't. It slows it down. And so why is the cancer not being finished off. And again, we know that if you have early stage disease, stage two, stage three, colon cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, we could cure you. Once it gets into stage four, the cancer morphs into a, a different beast. And we really need to figure out what that is and cure people with cancer. And um, I came upon a, a, a rather unique solution to that problem, which I've been using, and we can talk about that. Yeah, and and I, that's that was actually kind of my next question is because you as a next step, you 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 went to Mexico, you you uh, had more freedom in regards to the type of care that you were offering to the patients and were able to explore additional tools that in in a medical oncology in a in a normal medical oncology setting, you know, would would not be doable. So, 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 yeah, please tell me a little bit about your, your journey and exploration and what you, what you saw seemed to have an impact and what you, yeah, what you tried and uh, didn't seem to have the, the effect that you wanted to have or and maybe had a limited effect. Well, I'm uh, glad to do that. Uh, I'll back up just a second. Before I went to Mexico, I worked with Dr. James Forsyth in Reno, at uh, the John Forsyth, uh, uh, the Forsyth Cancer Clinic, uh, previously known as Sensory Wellness. And uh, working alongside Dr. Forsyth, I learned a lot about integrative medicine. And he had he was doing something called insulin potentiated therapy. And the focus of that was lower dose chemotherapy, higher efficacy. And uh, it had showed a lot of promise. I wanted to um, see what I could do beyond or, or make it even more effective. And so when I was in Mexico, I was recruited to go there and do that and start that program. So I was at a place called Chipsa, which is uh, on the coast of Baja, beautiful place. Very, very friendly people, great food. <laughs> they did a number of things. They, they, it was an old Gerson hospital and where Gerson had uh, perfected his diet and cured a lot of uncurable diseases through diet uh, in the 50s and the 60s, quite revolutionary. They carried that out. We also did insulin potentiated therapy there. And then I added to that um, something that uh, I had learned along the way from another group of researchers, which was uh, hyperoxidative therapy, which I think holds a key to a breakthrough in oncology. Because the fact is, when we're talking about these stage four cancers that can't be cured, you can actually get rid of the cancer if you give the patient a lethal dose of chemo. But it doesn't do the host any good if you kill the host in the process of killing the disease. And so in everything, uh, everyone understands, I think, is watching this, that chemotherapy is poison. It's a metabolic poison. It interferes with key metabolic pathways uh, that you need for life. 
Uh, I like to tell everybody, I have a pill I could give you and it would kill every cancer cell in your body. It does that by shutting off uh, the ability to metabolize oxygen at the cellular level. It's called cyanide. And if you take it, every cancer cell in your body will die. The problem is every other cell in your body will die. So that's a non-starter. But what is chemotherapy? It's cyanide light, meaning we're going to kill a lot of your normal tissue, but not all of it. You'll keep breathing and we'll kill the cancer in the meantime. It's sort of like when we bombed Germany or Japan uh, into rubble in 45, uh, the nations were not extincted. They built themselves back. And now West Germany and Japan are two of the most thriving economies in the world. So that's actually what happens in oncology. You treat somebody really hard. You make them bedridden for a year. And they slowly bring themselves back if they're stage two or stage three. If they're stage four, uh, they stay bedridden until they die, except that they live a little bit longer. It's not, it's not a bargain. And so what, what we do is we, we take advantage of the difference in vulnerability of a cancer cell to a drug compared to the rest of your body. Yeah, yeah with cyanide, there's no difference. But with chemotherapy... Um, Say you have 100 cells uh, and you give in a Petri dish and you give chemotherapy and 50 of them are normal cells and 50 of them are cancer cells. You'll kill 30 cancer cells and 20 normal cells. And then you do it again and you kill uh, the same proportion and you end up with no cancer and you have a few cells left over that eke their way back. Well, I thought, why not find a way to give less chemo with the same benefit with less harm? And which would be less less harmful, but more benefit. And so, um, like I said, in collaboration with another group, we came upon another vulnerability that cancer cells have that no one seemed interested in. Uh, that that we that I've exploited and uh, been very successful, and we can talk about that. So, because that is the whole idea in regards to like the insulin potentiation therapy is to be able to have a a stronger impact. Uh, with with less chemo so you you felt that i mean since you were exploring additional means you you didn't feel like the ipt was was enough by itself to to be able to do that there are a lot of variations on the theme ipt uh one of the things about the people who dr forsyth and i treated in reno was they didn't want full dose chemo under any circumstances and so IPT was the right thing for them. And for some of them, it worked really, really well. For others, not so much, but that was their choice. You know, people, uh, I'm a libertarian and people need to decide how they want their own body to work. Dr. Forsyth has published his results and uh, it's there for anyone to look up to see what uh, he achieved. Uh, some of it was quite impressive. I had some of my own ideas uh, and oftentimes like two rock stars in a band, you know, the younger one who comes on decides to start their own band, sort of like Eric Clapton uh, left uh, uh, the cream, but I'm not Eric Clapton. <laughs> I'm just using an analogy. I was in contact with the group that was focusing on um, another vulnerability in the cancer cell that no one in pharmacology seemed to have any interest in, which was um, kind of technical uh, chemically. It's called the oxidative state of the cancer cell. Uh, but I'm able to break it down into analogies that's not that hard to understand, and we can get into that if you'd like. 
Yes. So, yeah. So what, what were some of the tools that you're exploring? Because I know one of the ones that you're working quite a bit with was uh, vitamin C and K, K3 at 100 to 1 ratio. And uh, you, I know you were doing that you know, both intravenously and then also you know, just did that uh, as an oral protocol along with, uh, with chemo. Again, the whole idea, if you're going to put something into somebody's body by injection or by mouth, the body doesn't know where it's going. And so it's just going to distribute throughout the whole tish, tissues in the body. And so when it runs into a target, that's when something happens. And now it's true, actually, with monoclonal antibodies, that's the big difference. Um, that's getting, again, kind of technical, but there is targeted therapy in oncology. But aside from that, just with chemotherapy itself, which isn't targeted, it gets to the cell and then uh, the cell has to do something with it. Now, if you can think of a, a, a community like, say, Meridian, Idaho, where the homes are 10 to 30 years old and its trees are tall and people have been living in the homes for a while. And you may see someone replace a roof here or change a th some siding there. There's a little bit of repair, but not much. Uh, and everything's sort of stable. That's the way most of your body is living in the adult form. Uh, the body's built and just needs maintenance. Uh, and then you can think of uh, Caldwell, Idaho, where they're throwing up homes like crazy. And you have all this energy going on. You get rid of the uh, wheat and the corn and you plow it down and you put in your uh, plumbing and you have lots of uh, construction workers and lumber and trucks and everything running around and all this business going on. That's what a cancer cell is doing. And so it takes a lot more energy being spent very, very quickly to run a cancer. A cancer is just a high energy uh, input output um, entity compared to the rest of the body it's just sitting there. And so when we try to treat cancer chemically, we want to look for things that uh, differentiate the cancer from the rest of the body and then find targets in the cancer that aren't there in, in, in the stable part of your body. So in a, in a developed community of say Meridian, um, it's not a lot of activity going on, and so there's not much targets. But if you're building a, a subdivision, uh, if you run out of a lumber or you run out of electricity or you don't have uh, a water supply, the thing shuts down. So cancer cells are running at a much higher metabolic rate than um, normal cells. And the consequence of that uh, is that they're burning energy like crazy. And... It's not an oversimplification to say that when a cancer cell burns energy, it's not much different from burning gasoline in your car for the few remaining gas-consuming cars that are still there, out there. Uh, and you, you burn the gasoline, and out of, the, out of your pipe comes CO2, oxides of uh, carbon from the combustion, and it's hot. And uh, a cancer would be sort of like running your car at very high RPM, constantly as opposed to a car like when i even in my truck that gets 10 miles an hour in town it's an old truck sorry but i don't drive it much and i on the freeway and, and cruising at 2500 rpms i'm getting 15 miles to the gallon because i'm just cruising in overdrive there are chemicals that the cancer has to generate to cool its engine that the rest of the body doesn't need because the rest of the body isn't running at that level. And if you shut off the cancer's ability to 
cool its engine, it will die. We have identified a whole host of these medicines that we call uh, pro-oxidants, not antioxidants, quite the opposite, pro-oxidants. Uh, because the cooling off that the cancer cell has is through antioxidants. In other words, the cancer cell is generating a lot of oxidation by burning fuel to build the construction, to run the thing, grow new cells like you're a child. And it and is burning all this energy and it has to get rid of the waste. And if it overheats, uh, like in the movie Ford versus Ferrari, the engine shuts down. So uh, it it generates huge amounts of antioxidants and it needs those to survive. We've identified the enzymes that generate those antioxidants. And if you inhibit those enzymes, the cancer will die. And what a lot of people, even identical oncology colleagues don't realize, if you ask a medical oncologist, how does this drug work? They go, well, it attacks the DNA. That's true, but that's not what causes the cell to die. The DNA is damaged and it calls on uh, another part of the cell to repair it. And only if the cell can't, if the DNA can't be repaired, will the cell die. And so if you block that, that process, the cell will die. And it turns out that you can give quite a bit less chemotherapy and still get DNA damage. If you shut off the rest of the cell's ability to repair that damage, the cell will die. And so we have found a way to give half as much or a third as much chemo as you would otherwise, causing very little side effect and still get cancer cell death. It's quite revolutionary. Um, the problem is the medicines that we're using are haven't seemed to spark any interest in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and so we're left doing it on our own and are doing that. And um, very excited about what we're seeing. And the, I mean, the, the, the cooling down, I mean, one of the things that people think in regards to, to cancer, they, they want to make sure that we bring in antioxidants like glutathione is a common one that, you know, people want to, really kind of do IVs and, and take supplements of. And from my understanding, uh, glutathione is what is produced within the cancer cell at a high rate for that cooling down effect to help to kind of calm down some of those oxidants. Is, is Am I correct with that? Well, you're entirely correct. Uh, so let me uh, back up a minute there. I take a lot of antioxidants. And that's because, as far as I know, I don't have cancer. Antioxidants almost certainly prevent cancer, although no one's actually proven it because you can't put humans in a in that kind of a study. But but people who take antioxidants seem to be better off in many respects, um, health wise. And that's because when a cancer cell is when a cell is trying to turn into cancer, uh, antioxidants will prevent it from taking the step it needs to take to become an out-and-out criminal. The antioxidant will uh, rehabilitate the juvenile delinquent and say, don't do that. Once the cancer is full-blown, taking glutathione will make the cancer healthier and it will hurt you to do that. And so this uh, dichotomy is sometimes not well understood by certain people. I have a, my favorite analogy, and again, forgive me, but Having been uh, a boomer whose f 
father fought in the Great War. Uh, and also, just because of the way it is, we think of oncology and cancer as a sort of a, a military operation. We're killing cancer cells, we're bombing them with bad things. When you bomb things, you're hurting everything, not just the cancer. So anyway, on December 6th, 1941, the United States approach to the Empire of Japan was negotiation. Well, let's see now, if you do, if you do this, we'll do that, and we'll avoid war. And that's what taking antioxidants is. We're trying to avoid war, trying to avoid all the difficulty that that entails. We're trying to prevent the problem. The next day, the diplomats were expelled. And instead of talking to uh, the people on the other side of the Pacific about how to make things better, we were shooting at them. They were shooting at us. The war was on. And there was no turning back. And so once you have cancer, you have to forget about antioxidants and turn to oxidation because that's what's happening. And uh, there are a number of nutraceuticals that um, that we use that, that cause hyperoxidation and kill cancer cells. And one of the things that got me so excited about moving to Mexico, which is a big deal, was we had a patient there. I was just consulting and I was going down once a month and there was a patient there who'd been elsewhere um, and had a rare cancer that had failed everything uh, and was down there seeking uh, a remedy. And uh, we initiated the protocol on her and this rare refractory untreatable cancer disappeared. And I said, okay, I'm in. I mean, this is, I've never seen this before. This is like, going out in the woods 10,000 times and then all of a sudden you see Bigfoot and you go, this is, this is a totally new, it changes everything. I've got to learn more. And so I was hooked by that and um, we've learned a lot since then. And I think the pr process is very promising. The other thing is that the nutraceuticals that we use in comparison are dirt cheap. I mean, vitamin C and vitamin K and uh, a few other things. Uh, a few hundred dollars a month, not $20,000 a month, which is really what I just gave a patient a drug the other day. And uh, we're trying to get the pharmacy. God, I still, I'm still practicing. And in my hospital practice, I have to stick with the standard of care because those are the rules. <laughs> and uh, I had a patient who was not responding to conventional care. And so there is some research on a new a new drug that was pharmaceutical, uh, and I wanted to give it to her, uh, and the insurance company denied it. Everything we do has to be authorized by insurance, because, and the insurance denied it, and it was $30,000 for a one-hour infusion. And uh, I was all upset, and we went to financial services. I'm going to put in a plug for Good Shepherd Hospital in Hermiston, Oregon, and they said, Steve, the hospital's going to eat the cost. Go ahead and give her the drug. And I, I swear to goodness, um, that, that builds loyalty like you can't imagine. We gave her the drug. She did much better. But uh, the point of that is it's $30,000 once a month for these the drugs that the big pharma is throwing around. We're giving supplements that cost $800 a month. Um, and uh, so you can see where, where the money is. It's not... It's not in the nutraceuticals. I'm not interested in the money. You know, um, 
Uh, I should be uh, wealthy and retired at my age, having worked as hard as I have. But um, I've lived comfortably, and that was never. I never focused on becoming a millionaire at the age of fifty, the way some people do, because that's not why I became a doctor. And I, and and I don't care because I've talked to a lot of rich retired doctors on their yachts, and they're they're not miserable, but they're they're not happy. You know, they're bored. Yeah, you got a yacht. Yeah, nobody cares about you. If you're out here by yourself with your family, okay, that's nice. But, you know, people ask me, is oncology depressing? I go, no. People are extremely grateful for your being there. And um, uh, I happen to work in an area which is rural, uh, and most of the people are um, religion-centered. I'm not going to name a religion because it doesn't matter. But they have faith and hope, and they're grateful for what you do for them. And I'm probably going to keep working until I can't get out of bed, you know, because so it doesn't matter how much money I have. I can't spend it. <laughs> and so um, the point I'm making is that we could make a revolution in oncology and save a lot of money since Medicare is going bankrupt. And so I'm hoping to do that. Uh, and you and I have talked about other projects that we will collaborate on, hopefully, uh, in that regard. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about those projects, and I and I want you to kind of give a little bit of a, a plug. You've, you've written you know two phenomenal books, uh, one yeah one that directly relates to to your profession and your experience with with patients. Uh, can you just let the audience know, you know, just kind of tell a couple of minutes of each book of what they are and how people can find them? Well, I'd love to. Uh, the other thing uh, was uh, in the process of my work, I thought I had something unique to say. And so I wrote, I've written two books now, one that I published in 2010 and another one that I published just a year ago. The first book, uh, is extremely popular. It's called The Undying Soul. And uh, I'll talk, to, I'll, I'll mention how to get a hold of these books uh, when I'm done uh, with the summary. But, and it is my first person account of, of being a medical oncologist in the second half of the 20th century and the drama of thinking we were going to cure cancer and not curing it. And the underlying theme of that was that in the second half of the 20th century, we thought that DNA held all the answers to the riddle of life and that um, the atheist scientists had proven that. And uh, I actually, I'm very upfront about this, uh, abandoned my faith in favor of science Maybe one excuse is that my parents are both past and my mentors were my professors who are all atheist scientists. It's not an excuse. It's just a circumstance that might offer some context. But by 1995, I realized that that, that fairy tale wasn't coming to the end that was going to make us all happy. And so the book is about a one-to-one, -one, each chapter of the book is my interaction with a patient. And the theme of the book is to contrast patients who died without faith and patients who died with faith. So it's a, it's a book about death and dying, as well as a book about my own uh, journey towards redemption. 
and recapturing my faith. It's very personal, very emotional. Uh, it's an easy read, except that it'll make you cry, and everyone has raved about it. Um, it's out of print, but I have my own supply, and people can email me for a copy. The other book is a lot like a book that Eric Metaxas published a year ago. He published many books. The, one of them that he published was uh, Is Atheism Dead? And my book carries along several of those memes. Uh, I was on his podcast a year ago. He was, um, we had a really good time together. And you can look it up if you want to go through his podcast. You'll find my name there. Um, it's called Telos. And it is the scientific basis for a life of purpose. Uh, meaning that the science, it's the science of purpose. Now you may say, well, that's silly. Why would you have to have a science of purpose? Most people aren't scientists. They don't deal in hard science, which is why it was so easy to manipulate them during the epidemic with bad science, like quarantining healthy people. That's never been done before. And it didn't work out so well. We recovered. I know that in the beginning, drastic measures were necessary, but over time, they should have let up on that a little bit. That's my opinion. A lot of people now are coming around to that. And there's actually strong data. Sweden, you, you've heard of Sweden, right? Yeah, that thing. <laughs> and South I've, Dakota, I've where they didn't, and, and Florida, where they didn't quarantine and, and the economies didn't crash and you didn't have to print a bunch of money that had no substantial basis uh, for people to keep living and so that's one thing so the point is most people don't realize that if you talk to any college science professor that's in a secular setting that is to say not a christian school or a muslim school or a jewish school they will say that the fact is the fact is that science has shown that there is no god of abraham the God of Abraham means Allah, Yahweh, and Jesus Christ. That everything that goes on is a chemical reaction that's perfectly understood by all the smart people. And I actually believe that. And 50 years ago, when they sequenced DNA and uh, said this was it, it seemed plausible. Now we know that that's just a fat lie. And it, they may have thought that for a time, but they should have figured out that it's wrong and they should reverse their point of view, but they won't because they're entrenched. They have their um, their uh, their own paradigm and they won't let go of it because then it would threaten their, uh, their, their careers. God forbid that you would make a, a sacrifice for the common good, uh, even if it costs you a little something. And so the book... Telos, well, it's the science of purpose. And the scientists would say purpose is apparent. It's not real. When, when a wolf pack goes and gets something to eat, they're not actually being purposeful. They're just responding to chemical signals in their brain. They're motivating them like machines to go put food in their stomach and shut off the chemical process that tells them they're hungry. And they're just chemical machines. Now, that's pretty macabre, but actually, they go so far, and with all this talk about AI, it's even worse. They go so far as to say that when you, a human being, fall in love, 
And the most precious things that have ever happened to you, the kiss of your mother when you go to bed as a child and when you kiss your child goodnight in their bed, that's all just a chemical reaction. And that we could build a machine that feels everything that you felt and there's nothing special about you. There's no God. God is a fairy tale. That's what they're teaching as a fact. And the fact is it's a lie. It's proven false. And my book explains how why they do it, why they're wrong, what the answer is. And so if you want to know about the meaning of life from not a religious point of view, but from a scientific point of view to help you, uh, give you the faith you need to keep your the, the, the intellectual or the scientific or the philosophical basis to maintain your faith so that you don't doubt it. And when someone says your belief is a fairy tale, you can say, oh, no, actually, you're your your scientific atheism is a, is, a, is a fairy tale. This book will tell you everything you need to know. So um, the way to get either of those books is to go to my website, which is stephenyacoboni.com. Um, I know it's hard to spell all that, but Stephen is with a PH, and it's I-A-C-O-B-O-N-I.com. But you know how Google is. If you misspell it, it'll still get you there. And then you'll see um, a video of me and... Um, a trailer and uh, podcasts and all of the endorsements. I got the endorsement from the top intelligent design person in the world, Stephen Meyer, who runs the Discovery Institute. And I am affiliated with them. I'm not a member, but I'm on an advisory board with them. Um, and uh, you can email me through the website, ask me questions and uh, order a book. Well, Dr. Iacoboni. You can order both books, actually. Yeah. But, but you have to email me to, to, yeah for for the first one yeah and i and i i've read both they're they're both spectacular so yes i i really urge the the viewers to uh to take a look at them and and, and read them so dr akaboni thank you so much for uh for sharing all this information i know that this will be extremely valuable for people to understand their their own journey as they are are considering what kind of treatment that that may benefit them the most uh, and, uh, and and you've brought forth so much information and, and help for, you know, as I said, 200,000 patient interaction. That That's not a small number. Thank you so much, Dr. Alcaboni. Thank you, Michael. God bless you. Thank you. The information this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or treat any disease. If you'd like to know more about what my center offers, please visit thecarlfeldcenter.com. Please join us next week for another live consultation with a patient diagnosed with cancer on integrative cancer solutions with Dr. Carl Feldt.